Yes, you'll find the book of Jude on page, Jude on page 1,231. 1,231. The reading is the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains, for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life, fire, eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh, harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers, 
and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I think it would help if you kept that page of the Bible open. That's page 1231. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we read and think about this letter of Jude, that we may understand its message and apply it in our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have you ever written a really angry letter? I mean, a really angry letter. Not often, I hope. I have a few times, and I have to say that on most occasions, I have come to regret it afterwards, usually because the situation or the failing that raised my ire turned out to be not quite as I had thought in the first place. There is much to be said for the rule of thumb, which is that you should postpone posting a cross letter for at least 48 hours, and the same applies to an email. So it comes as a bit of a shock to realize that the epistle of Jude is an angry letter, and that he really has it in for a group of people in the church to which he was writing. Listen again to verse 10. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. Or verse 12 and 13, these men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness 
has been reserved forever. So who were these people? Who was Jude? And was his anger justified? Let's address the easy questions first. Who was Jude? You'll see that in verse 1, he describes himself as the brother of James. And in verse 17, he refers to the apostles in a way that suggests he was not an apostle himself. So he cannot be the other Judas, not Iscariot, who is listed among the 12 in Luke. And the only James who was significant in the early church in the mid-60s AD was the brother of Jesus, who presided at the council in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. In which case, Jude was a brother of James and therefore a younger brother of Jesus. Perhaps that explains the vehemence of his condemnation of these people who, as we will see, were undermining the teaching and the life of his older brother. So let's go to the second question. What church was being addressed? We've no definitive answer to that, but references to non-biblical but popular Jewish writings in verse 9 the reference to the archangel Michael and a dispute over the body of Moses, and in verses 14 and 15, a quote from the apocryphal book of Enoch, suggests strongly that this was a Jewish church, since the references would probably have meant nothing to a Gentile Christian. And at this point, it may help to comment on the use of non-biblical sources, which has troubled some readers of the book of Jude ever since the second century AD. I don't think there's much of a problem here. Suppose that I were to illustrate a point in this sermon by a reference to Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, or even to Paul Young's modern Christian allegory, The Shack. That would certainly not imply that I was extending the authority of the Bible to these books it would be no more than providing a helpful illustration or analogy to aid understanding. And I think that's what Jude is doing here. So Jude was probably a younger brother of Jesus, and he was writing to a Jewish church. And now to the really difficult question. Was Jude's anger justified? Was it righteous anger? Now, the target of Jude's wrath was a group of men whom he accuse of, accuses of infiltrating the church. Verse 4, certain men have secretly slipped in among you. They're men on a mission to subvert the church, promoting their own brand of supposedly Christian faith. So what characterized their own brand? And we can see this in the latter half of verse 4. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. 
This was their main presenting characteristic. Not just private sexual immorality, but brazen and overt. Hence the parallel Jude draws with Sodom and Gomorrah, which were, of course, byword for sexual license. And their supposed justification for this behavior was simplistic. Runs something like this. Since God's grace in providing a remedy for sin through the death of Jesus on the cross is without limit, then we can sin as much and as often as we like, and God will forgive us. Indeed, the more we sin, the greater God's grace. Now, just in case you might think that this view must have been an aberration, it pops up elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, Paul deals with it in a characteristically robust fashion in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And Paul goes on to spell out his argument. Christ's death on the cross dealt not just with sins, but with the problem of our sinful nature. In baptism, the sinful nature is dead and buried, and we are raised to live a new life with Christ. So Paul urges his readers in Romans 6, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the men whom Jude is condemning in his epistle have completely lost the plot about God's grace, perhaps deliberately, so as to excuse their immorality. And the second element in verse 4 that characterized the thinking of this dissident group was that they deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. This is entirely logical if they were to persist in immorality. One can imagine someone else in the church objecting to them. All the apostles have taught us to shun sexual immorality on the basis of the teaching of Jesus. So if Jesus is Lord, you cannot be right. Indeed, we have been warned about people like you. And that warning, of course, is repeated in verses 17 and 18. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. So they were forced to dismiss the idea that Jesus Christ was Lord of their lives as irrelevant. And the consequence of their dissident views, verse 19, they had divided the church. No wonder Jude was angry, and with justification. The dissidents were trading on cheap grace, not remembering what it had cost his brother to die on the cross. And they were dismissing 
his brother's right to be Lord of their lives. No wonder he was angry. Now there is a danger with a passage like this in that it can make us smug and complacent. We're not soft here on sexual ethics and we certainly proclaim the Lordship of Christ. However, the error that Jude was countering in his epistle is but one example, an extreme example it is true, of a more general error. This error emerged fully fledged as a serious problem for the second century church and it has never really gone away. That is, a tendency to separate out the spiritual aspect of our lives from what we do with our minds and in our bodies. In essence, we act as if our minds and bodies are of no significance to God. What really matters to him is the cultivation of our spiritual life. Now this could, on the one hand, lead to a hedonistic lifestyle, sex, alcohol, and food. It could equally lead, and in times at church it has, to the other extreme, to asceticism and neglect of body and mind. But for most of us, it resolves easily into a life that is compartmentalized. There is spiritual life, nurtured by Sunday worship, meeting with other Christians in small groups, and private times of prayer and reading the scriptures. And then there is Monday to Saturday life, in practice assimilated to the secular norms and culture. Lifestyle and working practice scarcely differs from those of non-Christians. Nothing blatantly immoral, perhaps, but certainly not Christ-centered or under the Lordship of Christ. And that, of course, is pretty much in tune with the spirit of our age. Go into borders and look at the section religion and spirituality. You'll find no shortage of books whose message is roughly as follows. Spirituality is good, but don't let it interfere with your life and having fun. Does this sound familiar to you? Uncomfortably so, perhaps. The consequences for our church are probably not division, since most of us are complicit. But the outcome is a church that is much weaker than it should be in modeling Jesus' kingdom in the world. A letter to us from a present-day Jude would no doubt be differently phrased, but we probably would attract his ire. So what should we do? 
after a largely condemnatory letter, Jude concludes with two positives. And his first positive comes in verse 20. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Make sure that your faith is secure against error so that you will not be able to be misled. We need to work at our understanding of Christian doctrine. It's not an optional extra. But we also need to pray in the Holy Spirit, remembering that it is the Spirit who longs to transform us, to grow in us the fruit of the Spirit, to transform our character into the likeness of Jesus. And then the second positive comes in verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you with before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He has the power both to keep us from falling into sin and to transform us so that we can stand before him now and on the day of judgment, faultless and with great joy. What a wonderful promise with which to conclude a letter that has displayed a righteous and justified anger. So let's conclude by praying those last two verses. To him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.